Amen. If you have your Bibles, would you take them out and turn to Psalm 127 today? The text is printed in the bulletin, but I'd encourage you, if you have your copy of God's Word with you, to open to Psalm 127. This psalm is one of two psalms that we have that is written by Solomon. It's a a psalm of Solomon. Psalm 72 is the other one. And there's been some suggestion that in this psalm, perhaps, uh, Solomon, of course, we we have his name in the title of the psalm, the very first line, a song of ascents of Solomon. There's also been some suggestion that perhaps Solomon has, has sort of put his own personal touch on this psalm sneaking his name into the end of verse 2. If you look at the end of verse 2 where it says, he gives to his beloved sleep, that Hebrew word beloved is the word Jedidiah. And if you remember when Solomon was born, uh, David and Bathsheba named him Solomon and the prophet Nathan came from the Lord and said, his name shall be called Jedidiah, for he is beloved of the Lord. And so we have this here that he says he gives to Jedidiah sleep, means his beloved, but perhaps that's Solomon's own way of leaving his personal touch on this psalm. As we read this psalm, this is what it's designed to do. I believe Psalm 127 is designed to topple our idols, many of them in one fell swoop. It's a psalm that's designed to topple our idols of control, that when we believe that we are in control of our lives or we desire to have control, it topples that and tells us that it's the Lord who is sovereign over all of life. That we are fully and completely dependent on Him. Apart from the Lord, apart from His sovereignty, apart from His work and His intervening grace, everything would be in vain. That's the key note that we hear in the, in the first two verses three times, vain, vain, vain. So let's stand together. If we can, if you're able, please join me in standing as we read God's word in Psalm 127. A song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This is the word of God. Let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will give your spirit to us to open our eyes to see beautiful, wonderful, gracious things in this portion of your word. We pray that you will encourage our hearts, steady our minds with the truths you have for us. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Please be seated. In the summer of 1997, it was the summer after my sophomore year in college, and I worked that summer at Eagle Lake Camp, a Christian camp for kids in the mountains of Colorado. And I was a camp counselor there for that summer. And I remember during the orientation week that we had at the beginning of the summer, 
we were just getting ready for 10 weeks during that summer where every week we would have a new batch of kids come into camp and to, to spend a week with us there five days from Sunday afternoon to Friday morning. And during the orientation for that, one of the things that they were teaching us as counselors is they were saying this over and over that we wanted this summer to count. We want this summer to matter for all the kids who come to camp here, for all the kids who spend a week here. We want it to be significant for them. We want this to matter. And, and what we meant was in the long run. We want there to be an, an eternal impact that comes out of their week at camp with us. And so that means we have to be intentional. We as, as counselors and staff working at that camp, we need to be intentional about praying for the kids who are coming about praying for the week that they were going to be there with us, about being intentional, about talking with them about eternal things, about spending time one-on-one -on -one with each one of the kids talking to them about Jesus, seeing where they are spiritually, seeing where they need to go to grow. Some of them needed to meet Jesus for the first time. Some of them needed to grow in their knowledge of Jesus. Some of them, as many kids are wont to do, knew of Jesus and perhaps had made a profession of faith, but needed to, to decide to be committed to that faith. There was a lot that needed to, to happen, and we wanted camp to count. You see, we didn't want to get to the end of the summer ten weeks later and recognize that hundreds of campers had come and gone through the camp, that we had spent time with them, but that it really didn't matter, that everything we had done had been in vain. We could have showed them a good time for a week at a time for that whole summer. We could have entertained them and taken care of them and had fun with them and given their parents a well-deserved break for a week in the summer, and yet that whole time could have been spent in vain if there was no eternal outcome from that week at camp. If none of them ever talked about Jesus or grew in their knowledge of Jesus, we could have gotten to the end and say, you know, we had a fun summer, but really, that was vain. And that's what we did not want to happen. We didn't want to get through the end of the summer and say, you know, I don't know if God was ever glorified in anything that happened here. I don't know if Jesus was ever trusted in or, or relied upon or rested in. That's what this psalm is talking about today. It says there is a way to live life that, that you get to the end of it and perhaps you've, you've built a good life and, and perhaps you've done good things and, and you've had a fun life and yet it's all in vain. It's in vain. Three areas in particular that this psalm teaches us that we must intentionally, deliberately submit to the Lord in three areas in our worship, in our work, and in our family. In our worship, in our work, and in our family. First, in our worship, in our spiritual lives, in our salvation, we must intentionally and deliberately submit to the Lord. This is a psalm that celebrates the sovereignty of God, the providence of God, his sovereignty and salvation as the author and the architect of our, of our salvation, our, our provider and our governor, our protector, our sustainer. Where do we see this in Psalm 127? Here's where I think we see it. This is, as we said, this is a psalm of ascents. It's a psalm of ascents. Every year in the Old Testament, three times a year, all of Israel, all the Israelites, no matter where they were, three times a year they made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the three major feasts the Feast of Passover, Weeks, and Booths, the three feasts, they all came to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, of course, was high up. It was in the mountains, and so they're going up. They're ascending up to Jerusalem. And these songs of ascents, Psalm 124 to one, or 120 to 134, are the songs of ascents that traditionally they would sing as they were on their way to Jerusalem. 
And so Psalm 127, this is one of those songs. We can picture them going up the road to Jerusalem singing this song. And yet you might think at first blush that Psalm 127 doesn't really seem like the type of psalm you would sing headed to Jerusalem. If you look at some of the others, you know, 122, Jerusalem, built as a city bound firmly together to which the tribes go up. Oh, how we love Jerusalem, standing within your gates. Or 125, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever as the mountains surround Jerusalem. These great songs of praise mentioning how glad they are to be in Jerusalem. But Psalm 127 is different. It's, it's domestic. It's about building a house, caring for children, getting a good night's sleep. It's these domestic pursuits. And we ask, why did they sing about building a house when they're on their way to the big city for a festival of worship? What does this have to do with public worship? And the answer is it has everything to do with public worship. Picture yourself as one of these Old Testament Israelites going to Jerusalem. You live somewhere else in, in, the, in the nation. Now you're going to Jerusalem and, and you're fully aware that, that you are going there for one of these great festivals of worship. You're going to what you would consider the greatest city on earth, God's city, Mount Zion, the city of Jerusalem. And you're going to Solomon's temple, this grand architectural feat that's just filled with the wealth of nations that Solomon brought in to build that was ten times bigger than the tabernacle ever was, that for years the, the ark of God dwelt in this dusty old tent, but now Solomon had built this glorious temple. And that's where you were going, the house of your God, where the glory of God rested and was centered there in the temple in Jerusalem. And just imagine how much eager expectation and joy your heart is filled with as you're on your way to Jerusalem. And, and as you go, you're singing this psalm written by Solomon. Remember, Solomon was the builder of the temple, and you're singing a psalm written by Solomon. And, and if you're an Old Testament Israelite, you, this is what you would know that we might not know today, that in the Old Testament times, the temple was not often called the temple. It was called the house of the Lord. It was called the house of the Lord. Read 1 Kings 5 and 6. It tells the story of Solomon building it. And if you read those two chapters, you will find it referred to as the temple exactly zero times. And you will find it referred to as the house 39 times. It's the house of the Lord. We're going to the house. Bring wood for the house. Do this around the house. That, that's how they referred to the temple is this is the house. This is the house, capital T-H-E, capital H. God's house, the house of houses. 2 Samuel 7, that's when David had wanted to build God's house. And David said, no, you won't build it, but Solomon would. He shall build a house for my name. And so as you're going up this road to Jerusalem, to the temple, you're going to the house. You're going to God's house, the house of the Lord. And here you are singing this song written by Solomon, who's the one who built the house. And you're singing a song about building a house. And if that is in vain or not, in guarding a city of Jerusalem? See, if you're in the Old Testament Israelite singing this, you know exactly what he's talking about here. You know exactly what verse 1 refers to when he says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. He's saying that unless the Lord's hand had been in the building of the temple, all the building of the temple 
the place of worship, all the guarding of the city of Jerusalem, all would have been in vain. This is a psalm that is helping the people prepare their hearts for worship. They're, they're on their way to worship and they're singing this song of preparation. Saying, unless the Lord does it. Just imagine, if you're one of these pilgrims and, and at some point you come over this hill and you see the beautiful city of Jerusalem. And the temple is one of the, the magnificent features that's outstanding in that, in that city. And, and your heart just swells with pride to see the glory of the nations has been brought into Jerusalem brought into your God's temple and see that temple filled with glory. No expense was spared in the building of the tabernacle. And Psalm 127 says, yeah, there's a lot of glory in the temple, but if the Lord was not in it, then it would be in vain. All, all of your pilgrimage to Jerusalem, all of the, the great efforts of the people to establish this city and build the house of the Lord would all be in vain if God had not done it. You'd have a beautiful temple. And it would be empty. This prepares them for worship by reminding them the whole reason you're coming to worship, the whole reason you're, you're taking this time out to have this festival of worship is because the Lord has done it. Because it's the Lord who is your Savior. It's the Lord who's brought you out of Egypt. All three of these festivals, no matter which one, celebrate some aspect of God's deliverance of his people. That he is their Savior. He brought them out of Egypt. He brought them across the Red Sea. He revealed himself to his people at, at Sinai and made his covenant with them, revealing himself in, as a God of mercy and grace, slow to anger, abounding in covenant love. He sustained them for 40 years in the wilderness. He brought them across the, the Jordan River into the promised land. And you are celebrating that the Lord has done this. He is the one who has established his people. He is the one who's brought them into this, this land where they now have a temple. God is their Savior. And yet we know, don't we, how easy it is for us to be distracted by ourselves. How easy it is for us to be distracted by ourselves. How easy, even as we come to worship, how easy to take our eyes off Christ. How easy to begin to, to think fairly highly of who we are and what we've done and, and this thing that we have accomplished. We start to believe our own press and we think more of ourselves and less of Christ. And this psalm begins by reminding us that every time we come to worship, that if Jesus Christ were not the primary builder of his church, then everything we do here would be in vain. That if Jesus Christ were not the head of the church, if he were not the bride of the church, the bridegroom of the church, excuse me, if he were not the Savior, then, then all of this would be in vain. It tells us, that Jesus is the, the one who builds the church. He chooses us. Think of it in terms of our own personal lives. The Bible tells us Jesus is the one who chose us before we chose him. Jesus is the one who went to the cross for us at a time when we were yet dead in our sins and trespasses, and yet he gave us new life. He took the initiative to redeem you out of slavery, to give you life out of death, to sustain you and to reconcile you. And if Jesus Christ had not taken the initiative to build his church, then we would come in vain. Sinclair Ferguson relates this. He's a minister who's from Scotland, and he relates that the, the motto of the city of Edinburgh is the Latin phrase, Nisi Dominus Frustra, 
I don't know Latin, so excuse my mispronunciations, but that is the first three words of the Latin version of Psalm 127. Nisi dominus frustra, unless the Lord, sort of brackets, builds the house, it's in vain. That's the motto of the city, and, and Sinclair Ferguson relates that many houses in Edinburgh still bear that motto over the door. Over the door of the house, it says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. How I would like for all of us to have that motto over all of our churches. To remind us as we come in every week that unless the Lord were the one who had built this, what we do would be in vain. To immediately fix our eyes on God. As we come in to immediately reset our minds, not about who we are and what we have accomplished, but about the fact that it is the Lord who is at work. That he is the one building his church. Throughout the centuries, he has been the one redeeming his people, gathering them together, gathering them into churches to worship him, that he is the one who calls us to worship. That we remind ourselves, even as we have the call to worship in the bulletin, that that it's the Lord who calls us to worship. We don't even come of our own initiative. He calls us. He invites us into his presence. Unless the Lord were at work here, all we do would be in vain. And so this is a psalm, first and foremost, about the Lord saving his people and bringing them to himself, that our worship could be in vain. But secondly, it says our work. In our work, we must intentionally and deliberately submit to the Lord. For many of us, I think this is what we first think of when we read verses 1 and 2. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Our minds first go, maybe not to the spiritual aspect, but to the very uh, literal, physical aspect that, that this is our life's work of building a house, building a city, making a life for ourselves. Derek Kidner says what makes this psalm so enduring in its significance is, is that it rehearses these three universal activities. Building a house, securing a city, raising a family. These are things that all people are engaged in. Building a house, making it secure, this refers to our life's work. Regardless of your profession, you don't actually have to be a carpenter or a home builder. It refers to the fact that that we in life work to build a house, to build a life for ourselves. Regardless of what your profession is, this is our life's work, securing what we have so that it is available for future generations. But this psalm warns us that it's possible to do our work in such a way that our life's work ends up being vain. The psalm tells us that it's possible to build a house in vain. It's possible to secure a city in vain. I mean, what does it mean to build a house in vain? To build a house and have it not be worth anything, I think it means that you get to the end and and you realize that all you've done is built a house. It might be a very nice house. It might be very large and comfortable and spacious and safe. And yet you look at it and it is vain because you recognize that God has not been delighted in. God has not been trusted in. Christ has not been glorified. He hasn't been rested in. Jonathan Edwards once preached a sermon and the title of the sermon was God Glorified in man's dependence. God glorified in man's dependence. And 
I didn't even feel like I had to listen to it. The title tells you all that, that God is glorified when we are actively, deliberately, and intentionally dependent on him. When we rest in him, when we trust in him, when we do not have an attitude of independence, but rather dependence on God for our good. Look at verse 2, the way it describes this. It's such a memorable picture in verse 2 of the way to go about your work in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. I mean, we all want our work to count. We all want our work to matter. We all want to do work that, that has lasting and enduring significance. And, and, and so many of us, verse 2, if we're afraid, if we get nervous that perhaps it's not counting or it's not working well enough, we, we get busy and we think, well, we have to work harder. We'll get up early. We'll stay up late. The, the contrast in this verse, it, it's not of a person who works hard and a person who's lazy. That's not the intended contrast. The contrast is the person who is independent versus the person who's dependent. The, the independent person, they want their work to succeed, so what do they do? They just get up earlier. They just roll up their sleeves, tighten up those bootstraps, say, I'm going to make this thing happen. I will get it done in my strength. There's nothing wrong with hard work. There's nothing wrong with getting up early and staying up late. But, but this is the person who's eating the bread of anxious toil. Anxious toil. He's not trusting in the Lord. He's not resting in the Lord's provision. He is trusting only in himself, and that leads to anxiety. I think we're probably more prone to that temptation here in Los Angeles than perhaps other places. One of the things that makes Los Angeles to be the world-class city that it is, is that it's filled with opportunity. That there's so much industry, there's so much business, there's so much opportunity here that people come to LA in order to make it, to make something of themselves, to, to build a house, to find life. I saw an article this, this week or last week that referred to LA as Silicon Beach. Not Silicon Valley, but this is Silicon Beach and the new place of technological innovation. That There were these three guys from LA who had developed some well-known apps. And so this was now becoming a, a center of technological innovation. And, and that's what we think of, that L.A. is a place that we come to find work, to build a life to establish ourselves, because there are so many opportunities available here in Los Angeles. And yet, so often, we fall to this temptation to eat the bread of anxious toil, to feel the pressure that I have to make something of myself, I have to rise up early and stay up late, otherwise I will not succeed. But where are the other voices? Where are the prophetic biblical voices telling us, don't eat the bread of anxious toil? You can come and you can make it big and have it all be in vain if the Lord has not been delighted in. If you don't submit to the Lord in your work. You see, I think verse 2 tells us one of the first signs that you have an attitude of independence is an attitude of workaholism. Right? This is describing a workaholic. He can't get away from his job. Early in the morning, late at night, he's there. He's still at the office. He hasn't left. He's doing his job. You throw yourself into the work and you wear yourself out and the psalm says, it's all in vain. It's all in vain. Meanwhile, God gives sleep to his beloved. God gives sleep to his beloved. You are the person who's just living out one Psalm 127 too. 
Or another sign of that we're living out that verse is, is our stress. Our stress evidences our attitude of independence from the Lord. For me, one source of stress in my life has always been the family budget. Whether it's because I worked in a bank for a few years or my, my Dutch ancestry that is notoriously cheap, for me it's always about the budget. I've always kept a very close eye on where the money is coming from and where it's going and how much of it is going into certain places. And, and I do that, and when we have a month where things just don't look like they should, it leads to stress, and I lose sleep over that. And so uh, this, this week... I, just, I have this great spreadsheet of the budget, great and terrible spreadsheet, and I opened it up this week, and I moved it all down, and I wrote at the top, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. That for me, that was an area I just had to say, listen, it is possible to keep an immaculate budget, to watch every single penny, and to get to the end of our life, and, and maybe we'll end up fabulously wealthy because I did that. And it will all be utterly in vain, and the Lord will not be pleased. What area of your life do you need to open up and to write at the top, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain? Where are your temptations to stress? Where are your temptations to independence from the Lord? Where are we not submitting? Where are we tempted to workaholism, to taking it all on ourselves, and feeling that if, if we don't do it, nothing will happen. Feeling that we just need to roll up our sleeves and work harder. Many of us suffer from self-confidence rather than God-reliance. Listen to what John Calvin said about this in his wonderful Calvin-like way. He says, It behooves us to remember this, that since the minds of men are commonly possessed with such headstrong arrogance, as leads them to despise God and magnify beyond measure their own means and advantages, nothing is more important than to humble them in order to, to lead them to, to uh, excuse me, in order to teach them that whatever we undertake will dissolve into smoke unless God, by his pure grace, cause it to prosper. He says that's his experience, that men by nature are so arrogant that we despise God and we magnify beyond measure our own input, our own means, our own advantages, and therefore nothing is more important than that we be humbled in that. That we learn to rely on God for his pure grace. The end of verse 2, the faithful person sleeps. I love the contrast here. You've got this independent person who's so anxious, who's so addicted to the work and so stressed out that they're up early, they're staying up late at night, they're eating the bread of anxious toil, but the faithful person, the dependent person, sleeps. The Lord gives them sleep. Isn't that a beautiful image? Isn't that a beautiful image in contrast to the workaholic who's, who's working their fingers to the bone in anxiety? The, the beloved of God simply does his work leaves the result to God, and goes to bed. You know, the work might be the same. The, the, the dependent person is still building a house. They're still securing it. They'll still be the ones raising the family. They're doing the same work, but they go about that work in a completely different way. The attitude, the approach, is 180 degrees different. And what makes the difference? 
if you are person one who's eating that bread of anxious toil, how do you get to person two who, who sleeps, who's able to leave it in the Lord's hands? What makes the difference? I think it's in one word in verse two, and it's in the word beloved. I think the difference is made by those who know their status as the Lord's beloved. Who know that that's true about them, that this is who they are, that, that they have heard Jesus look at them and say, you are my beloved. In you I am well pleased. Would that change how you feel about things? Would that change your ability to fall asleep at night and to rest easy, knowing that God calls you his beloved? A while back, Henry Nouwen wrote a book, and it was called Life of the Beloved. And that was his whole thesis, was that when you know yourself to be God's beloved, that it completely changes the way you live your life. Not just spiritually, not just your spiritual part, but your entire life. When you are secure in that, that your identity is God's beloved child, that he is pleased with you, it gives you a whole new freedom in life. He says you're no longer bound to this idea that you have to earn it, that you have to make something of yourself because God already makes something of you. He has already given you the identity that all of us so deeply long for, the identity of being the beloved, that he cares for us, he, he loves us, he thinks highly of us. He says well, if that's true about you, you don't stress anymore. Your life's not all about you anymore. Your life is now free, free to live in a whole new way because you are God's beloved. That's why it's the gospel that's so central to everything in Psalm 127. That's why it's the gospel that's so central to saying, unless the Lord is building this house, that we labor in vain because God gives to his beloved sleep. There's only one way for us to avoid eating the bread of anxious toil. I don't want to eat that bread. That sounds miserable. And the only way to avoid it is, is through Christ, through believing in Christ, through centering ourselves on Christ, finding ourselves in him, the beloved of God. In our worship, we must submit to God. In our work, we must submit to the Lord. And finally, in our families, we must submit to the Lord. This is the third area of this psalm which we must deliberately submit to the Lord. Verses 3 through 5. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Again, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain, there's actually a, a triple meaning there. That word house, we saw that it has sort of the spiritual meaning, the house of God. It has a very physical meaning, our actual houses that we build. But in Hebrew, it also, your house is your family. Your house is your descendants. It's all the people that are included in it. And so those are the three areas of this psalm, that in our worship, in our work, and now in our families. That unless the Lord builds our house, our family, those who build it, labor in vain. Even in family life, we are reminded to humbly submit to the Lord. There Thomas summarizes these last three verses of the psalm this way. He says, this psalm reminds us that children are a heritage from God. 
that whether we have children or not, and if so, how many children we have, and what they turn out to be is for God and his sovereign providence to determine. That all of our family life with children is in God's hands, whether we have them or not. If so, how many we have. And if we have them, what kind of children they are, what they turn out to be, what their health is like. It's all in God's hands. I think there are a few things in this life that are, are more suited to show you how little control you really have than children. Even just the process of, of their coming into being is in the Lord's hands. Whether they're healthy or not is in the Lord's hands. What they turn into is the Lord's hands. In Solomon's day, I think things were a lot different in Solomon's day, in some ways opposite of our own day. In Solomon's day, large families were prized. They had great practical value. Many people needed a big family to work the farm. They needed the children around. They needed them to leave a legacy. They needed them for health care in their old age. You had to have some younger people who liked you, who wanted to care for you, to provide for you. And so it was, it was normal to have large families, and Solomon reminds them in that context that, that children aren't to be taken for granted. It's not just a natural process that, that everyone expects and will naturally receive a large family. He said, it's a heritage from God. Children are a blessing. I think in our day, we've almost flipped back the other way and and don't see children as the blessing they are anymore. Large families now are rare. Children are often seen as liabilities that simply keep us from really accomplishing the things that we had wanted to accomplish in life. We set out, and and so often we hear younger married couples say they want to take some time because they have other goals to accomplish. And, And to us, in our culture, Solomon says, Children are a heritage from the Lord. They're a reward from God. They're a blessing from God. They're not to be despised, but to be received. And sometimes we we recognize among ourselves and among our culture that that we don't even know how to receive God's blessings well. Sometimes we even despise the things God gives us as blessings rather than receiving them from his hand with great thankfulness, appreciation, with worship, with love and with care. But he tells us here that it's possible, following the theme of this psalm, it's possible to get to the end of our child-rearing days, to send them off into the world, and, and to recognize, what have we done? Perhaps we get to the end and we say, all we've done in these years is, is well, we, we've kept them alive. That's good. We've fed them. We've clothed them. We've, we've entertained them. And yet it's been in vain. It's possible to raise children and have even that be in vain if if God is not glorified, if Jesus Christ is not delighted in, if he's not rested in, if the children don't grow up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and and learn to see Jesus as their greatest treasure. That we get to the end and and just like the building of the house, just like the securing of the city, so with the, the raising of children we can get to the end and say, what have we really accomplished? Unless we intentionally deliberately submit to the Lord all areas of life. There's one way to do things that matter. To get to the end and have accomplished something that counts, that will last. That's to do it in humble dependence, in humble, intentional reliance on God for His provision and His blessing on our lives. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, You are our God, our good sovereign provider, our shepherd who cares for us, 
who blesses us, who calls us in Christ, your beloved. And so, Father, we need so often to repent of our independent ways, of our inability to see ourselves as you see us, but rather to ignore your pronouncement of belovedness, and we work independent of you, stressing out over nothing. Father, gather us under your wings. Let us know your tender care for us, that we may believe in Christ and delight in Christ and find our rest in Christ. Father, that will be true life given to us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. May it be so. Amen.